0: Um, This afternoon we'll be reading from Genesis 1, verses 26, through chapter 2, verse 3. In your pew Bible, that's page 2. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness.
1: It is uh, good to open up God's Word, and as you keep your Bibles open to Genesis 1, let me just make a couple of further announcements. Yes, the Shorey moving truck is being loaded at 4.30 this afternoon. If anyone just feels like getting a little exercise, uh, uh, the help would be appreciated. You could meet us on Darby Road in our home in Habertown. It will only take about an hour, hour and 15 minutes. To do. Uh, so if you're able, thank you. Um, also, want to mention that starting in January, we are going to begin a series of messages, ten messages, entitled Wind Chasers and Worshippers uh, A Quest for Human Significance. It's uh, rooted in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, it is the Bible's clearest, although most confusing, but at the same time, clearest declaration of the meaning of life. What does life mean? If you've ever had a moment in your life where you have wondered that question, or if you know people who are asking that question, this this series is intended to get to the heart, the core of what it means to be human, made in God's image. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are wind chasers and there are worshippers. There are those who are chasing the wind, who are chasing vanity and futility, and there are those who fear God and love God and serve God. At the end of the day, those are the two kinds of people that exist. We are made to be worshipers. Uh, We encourage you to, uh, to plan on this, to plan on inviting people. In a week or two, we'll have invitation cards for you. The format for these messages is going to be different. Uh, We're going to do about 30 to 35-minute messages, followed by 10 to 15 minutes of Q&A. So we're actually going to have uh, a way for people to uh, text their questions to either Andy or Alex, and those questions will be asked of me at the end of the message, be more interactive that way. Very much designed uh, to minister to people who are not believers uh, and really are asking the important questions. So uh, please be planning on that. Until then, we begin this morning a two or three part Christmas series that I've entitled, The Death of Man and the Birth of God. The Death of Man and the Birth of God. Let's, Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help in this next few minutes that we would hear from you The words that you have, the words of life, the words of truth, that our hearts so desperately need. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, our first Christmas text for this season is Genesis chapter 1, and I'm sure you are reading that, you have heard that read, and you are wondering how in the world is that a Christmas text? And the only way you're going to understand that it's a Christmas text is if you understand that the Bible is a story. It is a story that has a beginning, that has an ongoing developing plot, and that is working toward a climax. We need to understand that the Bible is not an anthology of, of ethical musings or moralistic sayings or that kind of thing that some kind of religiously minded people in the past kind of cobbled all together and just kind of threw them into this book. No, the Bible is really a single book that tells a single story. And all the various parts of the Bible have been authored by the same mind, God, using many different human authors. And so each word on every page, each line of every text, each event that is recorded, each teaching that is offered, each act of God that is proclaimed, all of these together in the Bible unveil for us the cosmic drama of human history. They tell us where we come from, they tell us why we are here, and they tell us where we are going. It is very easy as we live life in this broken world to assume that there is nothing grand or glorious about life at all, that that life is mundane, that it's ordinary, that it's common. And we lose touch with the grand. We lose touch with the glorious. We think that our lives are inconsequential, that nothing really matters. Well, that just isn't so. The message of God to us in the Bible is that God has a great plan. And that plan began in the creating of a glorious race of human beings with whom he would share his glory and into whom he would pour his infinite love, mercy, and grace. We can, we can summarize it all in these three statements. Number one, God made man majestic in glory and love. Let that settle on you. We'll hear about it this morning. God made man majestic in glory and love. But second, man died. Falling from that majestic glory and love into great misery through great sin. Number three, God became man. That's Christmas. God became man to restore that majestic glory and love through his heroic sacrifice and great grace. That's the story of the Bible. And that's what Christmas is all about. We begin this morning with a look at the first two parts of that. God made man majestic in glory and love, and man died falling from that majestic glory and love into great misery through great sin. This is is a message about the majesty and the misery of man. As we look at Genesis chapter 1, we see in these early chapters of cosmic history that God, God makes man and woman. He makes mankind male and female and from them obviously children who were made to be majestic in their role on the earth. Who would be the objects of his perfect and infinite love. It, it really is a stunning beginning to the story. And as we think about God's design for us, for us as human beings, there are are three parts, three dimensions to the majesty of man, to our majesty that I want us to make sure to see. Man reflects the being of God. Man rules the creation of God. And man relates to the person of God. Here is our majesty, three-dimensional majesty. Man reflects the being of God. Man rules the creation of God and man relates to the person of God. Let's look at these one by one. They're right in the text. First of all, man is majestic. You and I as human beings are majestic in that we reflect the being of God. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. The Hebrew word for image here speaks of a shadowy resemblance or a reflection or a a likeness or a representation of something. The word image uh, and likeness has the relationship of a picture to the person of whom the picture is taken or of a shadow to the object that casts the shadow, or of a statue to the subject of that statue. The statue, the person, is the real thing. The picture is a reflection of it, is an image of it. God has designed us as human beings to be visible representations of him on planet Earth. God has designed us to be his image, It's interesting, it's the same word that's used in Exodus 20 where God says, don't make graven images. God tells us, don't you try to create an image of me. Why not? Because you're not good enough to do it. You're not skilled enough to do it. You're not powerful enough to do it. You don't have the right concept of who God is to do it. But it's not because God is opposed to images of himself. He just doesn't want us making them. Because God himself has already made them. Look in the mirror. You are an image-bearer of God. You are a reflection of the being of God. When when Adam and Eve looked at each other, when Adam looked in a mirror, he was seeing a reflection of a reflection of God. When Adam and Eve looked at each other, they thought about God. Because what they saw in each other represented who God is. There before Adam's eyes in Eve, there before Eve's eyes in Adam, was a clear, wonderful representation of the being, the heart, the character, and the attributes of God. God. Maybe, maybe that's why God's heart raced a little faster after he created humans than it did after he created everything else. You remember how it runs in the creation account in Genesis 1? God made the light, he made the darkness, he made the plants, He made the animals, all the beasts in the field. And he says, it is good. And then he made man. This is very good. You know what's remarkable, my friends, is how many humans are trying so very hard to deny this dignity. Yeah. It's astonishing how much time and energy and scientific theory is going into proving that we have no dignity. Mm-hmm. That all oh, we are are King Kong's cousins, you know that somewhere in the distant past we crawled out of the slime, and 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 we are related to the orangutan. You know, the, the, and, and there's nothing special about it. You, you wonder why would humans do that? I, I suspect I know why humans do this. Because as soon as you admit that we are made in the image of God, you admit that there is a God. And as soon as you admit there is a God, then you're accountable to God. And, and then life changes. Right. And so we don't want that. And so we live in denial. I think it was C.S. Lewis in the last battle, uh, the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia, talking about Diggory, I think it was. Diggory who is denying that Aslan the Lion is singing the world into existence. Uh, even though the lion is clearly singing the world into existence. And and, uh, somebody says there about Diggory, the problem goes something like this, the problem with trying to make ourselves stupider than we are is that we very often succeed. Uh, You know, Diggory, he knew the lion was singing, he knew creation was happening, he knew... And yet, he wanted to live in denial of it and suppress it. And so, in trying to make himself stupider than he was, he became stupider than he was. And, and so, we humans have been doing that. And so we, we, we deny that there is a creator God. We deny that, that we are made in his image. We deny that we have dignity and worth and value that transcends the animals. The animals are wonderful. The animals are beautiful. But they're nothing compared to us. And you say, well, they, they seem like us. Uh, an ape, you know, in some ways, you know, he's got hand-like things. One person has commented that, that that's not particularly amazing. A is gonna have things that are similar in his creations. What's really amazing is that even though the ape has hands, he doesn't really do anything with them. We do something with our hands. We make things. We create things. You know, we're told, well, you know, the animals, they have their civilizations and they have, you know, like the yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't deny. They ain't nothing compared to us. Yeah, somebody said, you, know, you never you never go to an ant colony and find a there may be certain ways in which we are similar. We are not the same. God, when he made us, when he made Adam, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And with that, the image of God went into him. It's hard to define what that image is. It's not physical because God isn't doesn't have a body. It's something deeper than that. It's something more wonderful than that. There's a there's a intellectual likeness to God. We think and reason like God does, but it's more than that. It, there is a moral likeness to God. We have a sense of right and wrong, and God does too. And it involves a relational likeness to God. We know how to love and be loved. We know how to fellowship and commune like God does. It it involves a positional likeness to God. God rules the universe, and God has called us to rule for him, as we'll see in just a moment. It, it even involves what we might call it, immortal, or to use a big fancy word, ontological likeness to God. We, in our being, we are made for eternity. Yeah. Made for eternity. There's all these things, and, and yet even more because the angels share most of those things, but they're not made in the image of God. Yeah. At the end of the day, we're going to be higher than the angels. God has made us unique. We are majestic in that we reflect the being of God. Secondly, we are majestic in that we rule the creation of God. We rule the creation of God. You saw it, right, in verses 26 and 27, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Man is made to rule in Psalm 8. The psalmist says, "O Lord, our Lord, you have crowned us with glory and honor. We don't speak much of the majesty of man, do we? But we need to. We are crowned with glory and honor. And the psalmist goes on to say, and you have given to us dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under our feet we are lords of the creation we are made to rule this part of what the idea of an image of god involves back in ancient times when a conqueror would go into a foreign country and and vanquish that country he would leave an image behind an image of himself which was to serve as a reminder To those people that though they could not see him, he still ruled there. And it's into that historical cultural context that we find this, this phrase. That we are made in the image of God. We are made to be such in our rule. We are to represent God in his rule on planet earth. So that wherever you see a human being, God is king there. God is ruler there. Through his representative human beings, we are made in the image of God to rule the creation of God. And so in this role, what does Adam do? Well, the first thing he does is he names the animals. In the Bible, that's, a, that's, a, that's an authority thing. That's a ruling thing. Rulers and kings and creators got the main things. And we've done a strange job with this past time. Whoever came up with blobfish. You know, for, for a name, or a warthog, or, or, you know, there are these these strange names that we come up with. But the reality is, go back to biology days, uh, you know, all those Latin terms, you know, what were the scientists doing? They were exercising their role as image bearers of God. They had the right to name the animals. We did too. We did too. Adam named the animals. Adam tended the garden. Remember in chapter 2, it says that Adam was placed into the garden and God says, I want you to tend it. You see, our role as those who rule the earth is not to ruin the earth. Our role is to care for the earth, to take care of the earth, to nourish it and nurture it and protect it so that it can be preserved and so that it can be beautified. Adam, he... He ruled, or he named God's creatures. He tended creation. And then this working out of our role as rulers of creation involves something more. The actual celebrating of creation. Just just look over in your Bible at chapter 4, real quick. Chapter 4 and verse 20 where we see this play out. <coughs> One of these genealogy things. You remember I told you a few weeks ago genealogies can be pretty cool if you Pay attention between your dozing off you know, when, you're, when you're reading through it. Here, here's one, uh, Genesis 4 and verse 20. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. And Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. What are we seeing here? Well, we're seeing the role, have dominion over the earth, played out in human existence. And so you have one who was the father of those who dwell in tents, nomads, who have livestock, the first shepherds, the first ones to kind of uh, grow and tend the animals for human good and for human advantage. And then you have this, this guy named Jubal who played the, light, the lyre and the pipe, the first musician, the first artist, taking musical notes and, and bringing them into submission. And having dominion over them to create and restructure and reorder them in a way that they produce beauty and they celebrate life and they celebrate human experience and they remember human sorrow and all that music and art does for us. So you have these shepherds, you have these artists, and you have these this man who created instruments of bronze and of iron, the first tool maker, and he, he was the one who... Uh, Learn how to take metal and use it in such a way that you could till the ground with it. And, and you know, utensils and tools. and ham. This, this is man functioning as the image bearer of God. This is man functioning as the Lord of creation. This is man ruling the earth. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Man is functioning in his role as ruler on the earth. When he explores things, and discovers things, and creates things, and invents things, and paints things, and composes things, and sculpts things, and sings things, and dances things. read recently the biography of Steve Jobs. Not a very nice man. From all accounts, didn't do very well in reflecting the moral image of God. But I'll tell you what, he reflected the Creator. What a genius. Given to excellence and beauty in his, his work. You know how many of the great composers of the past did not believe in God, and yet they created beautiful music? It's, it's pretty funny. It's pretty ironic, actually. Many of them denied, actively denied the existence of God, and then they created music that proved the because they couldn't suppress the image of God that was in them. Yeah. This is the wonder. This is this is good. We we are made to rule God's creation. So that last night was the uh, homeschool Christmas play over a covenant, and our granddaughter Al, <laughs> She sang away in the major to my unbiased had a key role I mean, she failed. In God sin I ah, ah, created what we're made for. What we're made for. It's part of our majesty. We, Our majesty involves that we reflect the being of God and that we Rule the creation of God. And third, that we relate to the person of God. This is what makes us so unique. That we have personal relationship with God. So that we we read, for example, in chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3, that God made a Sabbath day, a day of rest, a day of worship. And he, he said... Right from the start, I want my human creatures to have time set apart to worship me. Then a little bit later on, God says to Adam, I don't want you to eat from this tree. You can eat from all the other trees. What was he doing? He was saying, well, I want you to relate to me, not only as a worshiper, but relate to me as a subject to a king. I'm the one in charge. You are to obey me. And then a little bit later, where do we find God in, re- in Genesis chapter three? In the cool of the day, God is walking in the garden, and the imagery there is of God drawing near to man in friendship, in relationship. Man is majestic in that he reflects the being of. He rules the creation of God. And he relates to to the person of God. This is humanity as designed by God. Now, why does it matter? Can I suggest as I close that there are three ways that it affects us? Number one, it affects how we treat each other. It affects how we treat each other. Any creature who is stamped with the likeness of God shares the dignity of God. And thus, all human life is of value. All human life, no matter how young or old or sick or weak or imperfect it might appear, is valuable, is sacred, for it bears the image of God. All people, regardless of their age or their color or their ethnicity or their gender or their IQ, All are to be treated with respect and honor and care and love for every single one of them bears the image of God. In Genesis 9, we are told that those who kill another human must be punished severely. Why? Because the one they killed was made in the image of God. James takes this same truth and applies it by saying our tongues, the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And James says, what are you doing? What are you doing? Do you realize what you are doing when you curse another human being? And cursing is not just four-letter words. It's an attitude of the heart. It's a spirit of the heart. It's that which wishes harm on others. It's that which demeans others, disrespects others, puts others down, cuts others up is prejudiced against others, is bigoted against others, is hateful toward others, is is murderous toward others. James says, you can't do that. Because when you do that, you are attacking not just a human being, you are attacking God in whose image that person lives. Oh, this affects how we treat each other. We must get this. We've learned recent messages. We're all equal if we believe in Christ. We are all equal in Christ as sons and daughters. Justification by grace alone and faith alone puts us all on a level plane. But we're on a level plane at this point as well. We're all made in the image of God. That means every time I talk to you, I must respect you. And every time we talk with people we disagree with, people we are different from, we must respect not just respect there's a spirit of reverence that ought to be about we are we are we are looking into the face of an image bearer of god it's it's this point that cs lewis makes in his well-known words there are no ordinary people you have never talked to a mere mortal Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. You have never met a mere mortal. Oh, think about it. That person that you disdain. That person that you disregard. That person you ignore. That person you don't care about. Not a mere mortal. That person is destined to either be an everlasting horror in hell or an everlasting splendor Mm -hmm. in heaven, not a mere (coughs) mortal. And so let's take each other seriously. And then out of that reverence seriousness, may there be joy and may there be and may there be love, and may there be affection, and may there be attentiveness. May there be all these things. This affects how we, how we treat each other. It, it also affects how we view ourselves. Um, let there be, never be another day when we look in the mirror and say, I'm a nobody. It sounds humble, but it really is a statement of unbelief. I ain't a nobody. I'm made in the image of God. Now, I'm not a somebody because I'm somebody and because I earned it or merited it or deserved it or anything like that. No, I'm a somebody because he created me in his image and has redeemed me with the blood of his son. That makes me somebody. That makes you somebody. That makes you valuable and precious in the sight of God. When you look in the mirror, you're going to see your sin. You're going to see your warts. You're going to see your personal and moral and every way defects. But see through it and see beyond it. See deeper into who you are, what you've been made to be as a human being. We'll talk more about identity and meaning when we get to Ecclesiastes in a few weeks. So these truths affect how we think about, affect how we treat others. They affect how we think about ourselves. And can I suggest that these truths affect how we celebrate Christmas? (coughs) They they affect how we look at the birth of Jesus. Because here's here's what we have to notice. In case you haven't, something has happened. Between Genesis one and two, and the year two thousand sixteen, something doesn't feel majestic. Something about us doesn't feel majestic. We tend to look in the mirror. matter Well, Genesis 3 is the matter. Where Adam and Eve chose, instead of being like God, being content to be like God, they wanted to be God. And humans have been doing that ever since. And instead of majesty, there is then misery, there is then sorrow, there is then death, there is then pain and hatred and warfare and hunger and and depravity and ruin and all the junk. we had, Man was made in great majesty and splendor, but man died. Man died. We died in Adam and in Eve, and we have been dead ever since. That's why Christmas had to happen. Christmas had to happen because we got ourselves so lost, we got ourselves so dead, we couldn't recover ourselves, we couldn't restore ourselves. This is something God had to do. And so God became man. God inhabited a lowly stable. And it's not a sentimental, warm, and fuzzy place. What's happening? The greatest rescue operation in the history of the cosmos has happened. God is saying, I made man for majesty and glory. Man chose sin and misery, but I am not done with man. I love man. I love women. I love children. I love these creatures. So I'm going to become one of them. I'm going to inhabit one of their bodies. I'm going to live among them. I'm going I'm to do everything right. And then I'm going to die for them on the cross that they might be redeemed from their misery and from their sin, that they might have life, that they might be restored to the glory that I made for them in the first place. God didn't come in Christmas just to release us from hell. He came to restore us to glory. He came to restore Eden. He came so that we could, in full measure, in perfect joy, we could reflect his being, we could rule over his creation, we could relate to his person in love and in harmony and joy, and that forever. Amen. And it all came through Jesus. Yeah. when that little baby's body was the redeemer of the human race. Yeah, it changes how you celebrate Christmas, I think. And so, let us celebrate Christmas. And then Good Friday. And then Easter. And then Pentecost. And then the reality that Jesus is on the throne. And is going to reign until every enemy has made his footstool. And then we are going to be glorified together with him. Sitting on thrones of our own. In an eternal paradise. The new heavens and the new earth. That's Christmas. The majesty and death of man. Required. The birth of God. Which we will consider in greater depth. In a couple of weeks. In the meantime. Let's bow and worship. And let's love this amazing God. Who has loved us. So very. Very much.